the ghost of 2007-2008 hangs over this election like, uh, like, you know, like the angel of death. We are back in action. Welcome to the eighth episode of Global. We are indeed back, and it's great to be back. Global is a monthly podcast featuring one country per episode, where we deliver an on-the-ground look at our rapidly changing world. Today, we're talking about a country in your area of expertise. And I heard that you live there too, is that correct? I did. We're talking about Kenya, and it's a country that is very close to me. I've worked uh, and lived in Kenya during my time working at IRI, and um, I'm also married to a Kenyan. So I've uh, I've got a real vested interest in this podcast, Stacey. Well, great, then you're gonna be the expert. Can you give us some fast facts? Kenya is located in East Africa. It's directly on the equator. The population is about 46 million, similar to South Korea or Colombia, a country we covered in our second episode. Um, Kenya's capital city is Nairobi. It's one of the largest cities in sub-Saharan Africa. It is a commercial hub and uh, really is growing in size and scope. And it's a place you should probably visit sometimes, Stacey. Definitely, I'll add it to my list. Another city you should add to your list is Mombasa. Beautiful beaches. Uh, but that's not all, Stacey. It's actually sort of the commercial gateway to East Africa. The Mombasa port brings millions and millions of dollars worth of goods uh, through its ports just about every day that enter East Africa, places like Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi. Kenya is really the important gateway to East Africa. That's really interesting. Um, Kenya has two official languages. One is English. The other is Swahili. Uh, Stacy, during our Tanzania episode, we talked a little bit about the important uniting role that Swahili plays. Um, it's not just in Tanzania. It's actually throughout several East African countries. Kenya is one of them. Uh, Tanzanians don't like the way Kenyans speak Swahili. Tanzanians do it a little bit more classier. Maybe it's kind of like American English versus British English. So, JT, can you teach me a few words in Swahili? Absolutely. Uh, one is Asante Sana. You should know that one. Asante Sana. What does it mean? basically means thank you very much. And uh, here's a good one you should use with your boss when you go to work uh, tomorrow. Uh, Kazi mingi pesa kadogo. I'm going to have to write that down, but what does it mean? It means you work a lot for a little bit of money. (laughs) So when you're going in for the raise, make sure you use that one. (laughs) All right, noted. Kenya is a presidential representative democratic republic, similar to the United States, uh, but it is a unitary state and not a federal state. And Kenya actually is going through a process right now called devolution, where the country is actually decentralizing power, sort of like we have counties in the U.S. Kenya gained its independence from the U.K. in 1963. Because of the British rule, they drive on the left-hand side of the road, unfortunately, <laughs> Stacy. so that could be a bit of a problem. Did you drive in Kenya? I tried to avoid doing that. In fact- I think that's probably uh, good. Yeah. I mean, I am from New Jersey, so we, <laughs> we have some trouble driving around um, Kenya also is a member of a number of regional bodies and is a regional hub. The United Nations has the largest headquarters, the only headquarters in the Southern Hemisphere there. Hmm. Um, It is also a leader in the East African community, plays a very important role there economically and politically. JT, I hear Kenyans really love their cell phones. They do indeed. In fact, uh, mobile technology and mobile penetration in Kenya is very high. In fact, throughout East Africa, um, you'll even find uh, someone very in a remote 
far village having one of those old Nokia, you know, phones with the green, yeah, with the green screen and everything. Um, but everyone's connected. It's, it's really an important tool. Um, and there's this application that actually is very popular in Kenya called M-Pesa. M-Pesa. Is that something with money? Yeah. How did you know? Uh, I, I don't know. I'm peso, learning Swahili. You think it's peso? <laughs> That's what it is. Uh, Stacy, you're applying your, your lack credentials to this. But M-Peso, M-Pesa, it's all the same. And um, yeah, Kenyans use it to transfer money. Um, there's even ways of taking loans through wow. cell phones. Uh, IRI conducted civic education via text message. And put, awesome. set up a, a text message uh, platform called Jua Katiba, where you could actually go through your phone and query through SMS. So it's really an important part of Kenyan life, uh, not just commercially, but in terms of broader applications. JT, doesn't Kenya have a really important election coming up? They do on August 8th. So just a few days from now. And uh, it's the sixth uh, multi-party election uh, since the return of multi-party politics in 1992. And um, this one is going to be a tough one, Stacey. Um, you know, the, it's essentially a rematch between the incumbent president, Uhuru Kenyatta, who is the son of the first president, uh, Jomo Kenyatta, and the uh, challenger is Rilo Odinga, and he's actually the son of the first vice president. So it's the son of the first president versus the son of the first vice president. A Kikuyu uh, comes from the Kikuyu tribe, uh, Uhuru Kenyatta does which is the, a very large tribe in Kenya against another large tribe in Kenya, the Luo. So these are some uh, important elections. It's a real test of uh, Kenya's democracy. Um, can they get it right? Will they be able to hold these elections peacefully? I think that's part of what the show is about, is to sort of have that discussion. Well, to that point, I'm really excited for this episode because we have former U.S. ambassador to Kenya, William Bellamy. He was ambassador from 2003 to 2006 and is currently a senior fellow at CSIS. Thanks very much. We also have John Gathongo, who is an anti-corruption crusader. Um, He did serve in the government, uh, heading anti-corruption efforts and ethics efforts. Um, fled the country. And as we'll hear from him, he has really taken to task the government, um, is a leader within civil society, um, and is certainly fighting the good fight when it comes to anti-corruption efforts in Kenya, which is a huge problem. Thank you and well done. I, I, I really enjoyed listening to your Tanzania podcast. I'm going up. I'm going through the others. Yes, I'm a great fan of podcasts. Finally, we've got an IRI alumnus, Lauren Plock Blanchard, who now works for the Congressional Research Service up on Capitol Hill. Interesting fact, Lauren actually helped open our East Africa office, which was in Nairobi, Kenya, back in the day. When was that, Lauren, by the way? Late 2001, early 2002. We've been there for a while, Stacey. Let's get started. Mr. Guthango, just sort of looking back on Kenya and in terms of where Kenya has come from, um, maybe looking back in terms of its early history, 1965, 64, could you tell us a little bit about what that period was like for the country and, and, and sort of how it has moved forward um, from that time? Kenya had, you know, was a creation of the British uh, colonial empire. In the 1950s, there was um, an intense struggle against uh, especially the uh, the settler community uh, here in Kenya, and really Kenya is born out of a multitude of of, of struggles um, that um, in themselves arose out of you know the contradictions in our society, political, uh, economic, and social that arose out of the fact that we had a, a very powerful, small, um, but highly coherent, organized, and aggressive settler community. 
and the Kenyan state, therefore, as it emerged uh, into you know freedom in the early 60s, uh, it's a very exciting time. All countries that are that come out of uh, a settler experience, um, the first decades are ones of great excitement and the feeling of liberation and freedom. The development path that uh, Kenya's uh, founding fathers chose uh, was one which was closely aligned with the West. Um, they did not move to dismantle um, the state structures which were inherited from the colonial regime, and therefore it was conservative but uh, but stable. Um, and, you know, uh, Kenya um, grew uh, rapidly in economic terms after independence, really until 1973 when we had the first oil price shocks. Um, you know, around uh, OPEC and the increase of oil prices. Um, otherwise, uh, our economy was racing along, um, and even though we had our problems in Kenya, Kenya has had, you know, we had that, that was a period of um, uh, stability and growth uh, after independence. Tushangili ya Kenya, taifa letu tukufu, Kenya tunayo ependa, Kenya inche tunayo ependa. John, could you tell us a little bit about the era of Daniel Arab Moy? Um, during his presidency, a lot of people say that this is when Kenya truly became democratic. So would you agree? Daniel Arab Moy was um, um, vice president under Kenya's founding father, Jomo Kenyatta, who was our first president. And he was his long-serving vice president. And then Jomo Kenyatta died in August of 1978, President Moi uh, seamlessly took over, and that peaceful transition again uh, was, was was positive for Kenya. Um, President uh, Moi uh, led a far more um, economically and politically insecure regime, and therefore it was a lot more authoritarian. One also keeps in mind that this was during the Cold War, and uh, Kenya had taken the side of um, um, the uh, the West, uh, and you know that, that allowed authoritarian certain freedoms. Um, however, um, with the with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, combined with a lot of local pressure against the increasingly authoritarian and dictatorial tendencies of of uh, the Moi regime, President Moi ultimately was a pragmatist. And um, when the world changed around him, he wasn't very happy about it. But um, in uh, late November 1991. He accepted to change the constitution to to make Kenya um, a multi-party state. Um, that provision had been um, abolished under you know, under his rule uh, when Kenya had become a, a de jure one-party state. In other words, no other party could you know could exist except the ruling party. So with that, it ushered a you know a, a wave of excitement and freedom. Uh, as both the economy and uh, politics and society uh, at large in Kenya flourished uh, in the new uh, opening of space. We had a flourishing of media, both business uh, did well uh, too. And, um, and we had regular multi-party elections. Uh, we are now uh, going into a sixth cycle in terms of multi-party elections. Uh, we managed to change the constitution uh, in between. So President Moi um, was uh, both Kenya's uh, most uh, feared dictator, <laughs> vile dictator, but he's also the man um, who, who smelled the coffee in 1991 and accepted uh, for Kenya to become a multi-party state. He could have resisted, but he did not. He did not do that. And I think um, uh, despite the many misgivings people may have about him, 
is still credited for, for some of those changes. Okay, Ambassador Bellamy, could you talk a little bit about sort of the tribal politics and right. maybe your experience while well, time there and sort of how that fueled into the 2007 elections? Kenya's politics have always been ethnic-based. Uh, Kenya is has 50 different ethnic groups, and the largest, the Kikuyu of central Kenya, are only about 22% of the population. So whereas Kenyans vote, tend to vote along lines of ethnicity, the, uh, it, it means that in order to, to attain a, a presidential majority or parliamentary majorities, different groups have to come together and forge alliances. And this has been sort of the, the question throughout Kenyan history is, okay, which, which of the groups are going to, to come together? And these, these are always marriages of convenience. These are seldom long-lasting alliances. Groups will come together. Under the Moy era, it was less important because Kenya really wasn't a multi-party democracy. But in, uh, when, when that changed, and, and for the first true multi-party election in 2002, the, the, the tribal nature of the politics became very clear. There is a, uh, a feeling, I think, in Kenya that uh, you know, when your group gets in, if you do get elected and you do get in, this opens up all kinds of opportunities for for essentially for patronage, you know, your access to, to government means that you're going to be able to provide jobs and to provide resources and to look after your community and look after your tribe or your clan or your family. And by the same token, you know, losing that election means that you're sidelined, um, that you're, 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 you're not going to be at the table eating along with those who have, along with the winners and your clan and your family uh, are, are, you know, going to, going to have to wait your turn. This lends kind of a, a zero-sum aspect to, to, to Kenyan politics and, and generally raises the stakes. So you were ambassador from Kenya from 2003 to 2006. Could you tell us a little bit about your time there, some of the big key issues that you dealt with while ambassador? I think in a lot of ways I was lucky to uh, be going to Kenya in, in 2003. This was just after Kenyans had uh, turned uh, Daniel Arab Moy out of office after more than two decades of of uh, of his rule and uh, elected a, a coalition government. You know, the, the era of good feelings in Kenya lasted about a year, I suppose, before the governing coalition began to fall apart and, um, and serious rivalries uh, arose um, and particular uh, worries about corruption mounted. At least initially, John Gitongo was the permanent secretary in charge of ethics and uh, government reform. And uh, I, I came to admire and respect his efforts to try to uh, to try to make a difference unfortunately he was dismissed about a year in and a certain amount of drama ensued so john what was going on in your mind the moment you realized that you you had to resign and what was it like for you to le- to leave your country um they are now you know confident enough that they're telling me okay john uh, sorry this hour this uh, this hour to steal. I say no, it's not. I mean, <laughs> this is uh, this is not. It's it, 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 uh, you know, we're not just stealing from the public coffers. We're destroying dreams, which we are the ones who have hoisted upon the people. We have delivered to them, and they're excited about it, and we're crushing it. I mean, the, the Kenyan people, like all other sort of 
populations uh, are very smart. They can tell when, when leaders go off track. So I, I it, 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 it was initially, you know, there was a long period of, of, of darkness where I really did not know what to do. So Ambassador Bellamy, as you were leaving and then sort of that year leading up to 2007 elections, what were, what was going on in the country? Well, the, the important, an important point in all of this before the 2007 elections was the, um, the referendum that was held in November of 2005. This was a referendum held uh, because uh, the campaign promise, the President Kabaki's campaign promise to quickly, in 90 days, to draft a brand new constitution for Kenya had not been realized. And the drafting process had bogged down. And disputes had arisen, and bitter disputes had arisen, and government was proposing a certain a certain path forward for drafting this constitution and a certain constitutional vision that the opposition the opposition groups were unhappy with. I should point out that there'd been a falling out within the the, the coalitions I mentioned about a year in. Uh, after the 2002 election, the the, the 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 so-called Rainbow Coalition began to fall apart. Personal rivalries emerged. This this uh, this opposition movement and the government were at loggerheads in 2005. The government called a referendum, and and spectacularly lost this referendum, um, which was a tremendous boost to the opposition and a shocking wake-up call to Kabaki's government. I, I recall having a number of conversations with the president and with others in government at the time and, and you know, trying to trying to put the best light on this thing. This is this is actually an opportunity. This doesn't in any way threaten the president, but it, it is an opportunity for the president to reach out and 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 see if he can't rally all Kenyans around this constitutional project, project, you know, accept the loss, uh, but be presidential about it. And I think, unfortunately, they, they chose the opposite route, which was to circle the wagons to further purge the government of vestiges of the, uh, of the opposition and uh, making sure that they were not going to lose uh, the, the upcoming election in 2007. So that, that, that moment of November 2005 was really what I, where I think the troubles of 2007 started. And then, of course, in that election, you had uh, Mwai Kabaki running as an incumbent against, uh, against Rilo Dinga. And from there, you also saw, again, different tribes taking sides and sort of going to their own, um, to their own coalition that they thought would bring the most votes in. Yeah, uh, the ethnic battle lines were, 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 you know, were taking shape certainly by early 2007 there was there was a feeling too that that kabaki would be advantaged because the kenyan economy had begun to pick up really by 2005 2006 and you could see signs of this and that there was people had a little more money in their pockets a number of reforms had been undertaken including free primary education which had been very popular throughout kenya and i think i think kabaki and his entourage believed that the combination of the numbers they were going to be able to put together and the rising economy, you know, would would see them through. I, I think in retrospect, I mean, clearly that was that was wrong. The, the numbers were not there for Kabaki. So what exactly happened on the day of or the days leading up to the election? Because I, as I understand it, there were 1,500 deaths and more than 600,000 people left internally displaced after that. So what what happened? Yeah, you know, no one, I, I don't think anyone uh, expected this uh, outpouring of, uh, of of violence, and nor did they expect that the election would itself go so badly. I, I, I can remember thinking back to 2002, early on in my tenure, and thinking, you know, maybe the Kenyans really don't need any more assistance in putting together elections. Maybe it's you know it's presumptuous for us to continue to advise them on how to organize free and fair elections. They've done such a good job of it here in 2002. Well, so I think there was a there was a feeling that I don't think there was any expectation 
that there would be, one, a, a badly flawed election, rife with irregularities, and then an explosion of violence. I think that really came as a, as a shock. Biggest problems appeared to be at the tallying center in Nairobi, came chaotic, and which, uh, as early results, seemed to indicate that Orila Odinga was running much better than they had expected uh, and might be poised to win. You know, at a crucial moment, literally the lights the lights went out, um, and the the, the 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 screens went blank, and the public didn't know what was happening, and the political parties didn't know what was happening, and the next thing people knew was that uh, Mwai Kibaki had been hastily sworn in uh, at a midnight ceremony, a private ceremony in the state house, and been named president. And by the next morning, violence was starting to break out in a number of areas, strongholds of Rila Odinga, uh, both in Nairobi and in different places around the country. And this very quickly uh, over the next several days escalated into into violence. Uh, I think because no one anticipated violence, the police were unprepared, government and police were unprepared for this. And the official response to it was slow, somewhat haphazard. Uh, the police ended up shooting a lot of people. Um, by some accounts, perhaps as many as 400 people were killed by police gunfire. Um, it was in this context that uh, it is alleged that both William Ruto and Uhuru Kenyatta directed their ethnic-based militias to carry out attacks on on their opposite numbers. It was from that that the eventually the international criminal court cases were brought. So this 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 situation careened out of control over a period of days. There there really there really did not seem to be any homegrown solution to it in sight. And I think uh, it was at that point that uh, different parts of the international community came to the realization that there was going to have to be some form of international intervention, diplomatic intervention. And that's where Kofi Annan comes in, right? Yeah, that's where that's where Kofi Annan comes in. There were a number of efforts. Several U.S. envoys swooped in. At one point, Condoleezza Rice as well. Um, there were uh, multiple African efforts. At this, at this point, Kenyan civil society in particular was, was extremely active, both in trying to uh, trying to tamp down the violence, uh, to get communities to calm down and talk to each other, but also in trying to marshal um, outside forces that could come in. Kenyan civil society at that time deserves a lot of credit for being a um, very important interlocutor of the international community at a time when you know Odinga and 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 Kaki were both were both dug in. And then you had uh, what eventually was a national court on reconciliation and a power-sharing government. Uh, Odinga is put in as prime minister. And then the way, and then the way forward from there was really a series of steps and reforms to sort of ensure that this doesn't happen again in many ways. At least that was the, the intention. That, that was the intention. And the negative part of it is that, you know, no, the Kenyans had not voted. <laughs> Nobody in Kenya voted for this government, what they got. They got, they got a patched together government that, that was even less likely to, to, to function in a coherent or harmonious way than the one from 2002, which fell apart after a year. So this was this was never going to be a a, a successful uh, a successful coalition government. However, uh, it did have the the the, the, the a positive impact in that the the um, the experiences of 2007 
I think, motivated all Kenyans and sped them in the direction of creating this new constitution, which was the one big piece of unfinished business, um, creating the commissions that would look into this violence, uh, would identify the perpetrators and recommend appropriate courses of action, and also undertake a number of reforms. And, and that constitution um, really set the bar in terms of progressive constitutions on the continent. Very progressive Bill of Rights, very specific issues, addresses issues of land, uh, equity amongst gender. But of course, one of the key reforms is devolution. And I think that then brings us into sort of this post-constitution implementation period where as you lead up to the 2013 elections, you have the creation of these uh, county governments and things like that. But that election was more peaceful, right? Uh, it was more peaceful. In part, I think Kenyans were still living in the shadow of the horrors of 2007 and no one no one wanted a repetition of that. There was also a, a tremendous amount of, I think, Kenyan, uh, a tremendous amount of optimism and a certain degree of pride in this 2010 constitution, which Kenyans felt that did provide them with, um, with liberties and with safeguards uh, and, uh, and with a new blueprint for, uh, for, for their politics. Um, there was also a lot of confidence in the Supreme Court this, this at the time and in the new Supreme Court Chief Justice and a feeling that, well, you know, if things... If there are disputes, we have a we have a a, a, a top notch court here that's going to help us deal with it. There was confidence in the electoral commission at the time, high degree of confidence. When Kenyans were polled in 2013, they all felt that the electoral commission was doing a good job and could be expected to turn a fair result. It was a more peaceful election, but largely because uh, the loser again, Raila Odinga, uh, who felt once again and with possibly with some reason that the results had been rigged against him, that he had been robbed yet again, made a challenge in the courts. Uh, the courts, frankly, struggled to come up with a clear verdict about the fairness of the election. And uh, at that point, Odinga had, had the choice to make. Would he pursue this in the streets, as he had done in 2007, call upon his followers to continue not to accept the election results, or would he, would he, would he accept the results and urge his followers to do so? And that's the choice that he took. So I think that I don't, I don't think Odinga got enough credit for the statesmanship that he displayed at that time. So growth projections I've seen uh, for sub-Saharan Africa look at about a little bit under 3%. And Kenya's up in the five or six percent range. So, Lauren, where is this resilience coming from in the economy? Where, despite these challenges, Kenya continues to outpace its its uh, its other economies in the region. Kenya has a lot going for it. It is it is uh, a comparably diverse economy. Uh, they've got a pretty robust services sector, telecoms, um, a really growing uh, digital digital sector. Um, you've got international corporations who are very interested in getting involved in Kenya. IBM is there. Google is there. So this is not an oil-based economy. This is not an economy that is is predominantly just based just based on uh, exports, um, and you've got a comparatively educated and skilled workforce, but you do still have pretty high rates of unemployment. I think that are, again, one of the uh, one of the big issues that the um, incumbent president will be will be facing as he as he goes up to the polls. What makes Kenya really unique, I think, in the region is the strength of its parliament. Um, could you talk just a little bit about that, just parliament and the judiciary? Kenya's parliament um, has really developed, I think, pretty dramatically in the last 
oh, uh, 15 years or so, I think another major change, obviously, was the adoption of the 2010 Constitution, uh, which gave more power to the parliament. Um, you know, have they performed up to their expectations? Uh, you know, I, the verdict is out, and that will be up to the Kenyan voters on August 8th. Um, but uh, but definitely, they, they exert more uh, authority uh, than they used to. How pervasive is this corruption, and how will it affect the incoming government? What are some of the things they're going to have to deal with, especially as related to rising violent extremism in the country? Corruption is a massive problem in Kenya. Uh, Kenyans deal with it at every level, every day, um, from the policeman taking a bribe uh, to civil servants uh, taking a bribe. I mean, it is it is something that affects Kenyans on an everyday basis. In addition to that, at the macro level, Kenyans have heard for you know years about these large-scale uh, corruption cases, most of which remain unresolved, um, many of which implicate uh, current or former member, senior members of the government, um, both on the opposition and uh, the ruling party side. And I think that that is a challenge for both of these parties going into these elections. Um, so many politicians have been tainted by allegations of corruption. Um, so when anybody says that they're going to uh, clean up the corruption problem in Kenya, um, I think everybody has a bit of a credibility gap. So John, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you, you know, you take over this very difficult position. Such work is very dangerous. Um, and, and of course, people who fight corruption, who uh, prevent uh, politicians from eating, uh, can come under some serious pressures and dangers. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that for us, sort of some of the pressures that you faced. There was a, a sense of entitlement amongst the, the leaders that um, it was their right to st- it, it was their, it was their right to steal, their right to eat. The, uh, you know, after after you know, it's how you recoup uh, political expenses and years spent uh, in the in the cold wilderness of opposition. Corruption, it's it's directly related to challenges of governance. And another thing that plays into this is the issue of violent extremism. It's all linked, but maybe you can talk a little bit about what Kenya is facing these days. Violent extremism in Kenya, unfortunately, is not new, uh, nor is terrorism. You know, I think every uh, everyone here in the United States is pretty familiar with the 1998 embassy bombings in, in Kenya and Tanzania. Um, but we've really seen uh, over the last decade or so a real rise in the threat of violent extremism in Kenya posed primarily by al-Shabaab, which is based in Somalia, but is able to uh, operate, transit, and recruit from within Kenya. Um, And I think that that has been an increasing problem in the last uh, six or seven years. Uh, A lot of people would trace it back to around the time of the 2011 uh, intervention that the Kenyan military uh, launched into southern Somalia. Then there's also some of these homegrown groups like the Mungiki and the Mombasa Republican Council, I mean, where do these groups come from? Uh, what what do they mean? I mean, we hear a lot about them being used by politicians and having links to them. Yeah, you've got a number of different groups. You've got some ethnically based uh, militia. Mungiki is one. Um, we really have sort of seen um, them most prominent around election time, but they're operating sort of uh, continuously. They operate a bit like a gang, um, but also, uh, you know, thugs for hire. Um, uh, politicians are using them. Um, and I think one of the unintended consequences of devolution is uh, as we're seeing politics pushed down to the local level, it's not just national level politics. 
politics where these um, these militias and these armed groups are being uh, used by politicians, but also at the local level. So with the governors, uh, with members of the county assembly, um, everybody has their own thugs. So let's talk about foreign policy then. Yeah, you know, I, I, I hand it to the Jubilee uh, government. They have been very, very busy um, engaging both the West and the east uh, roads improvements in roads have been pretty dramatic I mean I've, I've driven on them uh, you know, they are connecting parts of the country that have been largely cut off um, and and that is something that the Jubilee government is going to be running on uh, a lot of that is is our Chinese companies uh, so so that's very visible but you've also got a lot of Western investment um, and uh, the, the government in Kenya certainly hasn't tried to cut off the, the West I think the relationship with the West has become a lot more complicated of course uh, since the election of President Kenyatta and Deputy President Ruto. Why is that? Well, um, you know, they they were uh, indicted by the ICC for the post-election violence. Uh, At the time, they were on opposite sides of the violence. Um, Those cases have since been dismissed. Um, But in 2013, uh, they ran uh, quite successfully, I think, um, in in mobilizing their bases on uh, sort of an agenda that they were being persecuted by the West, um, persecuted by the ICC, um, with a lot of heavy influence by the United States in, in, and Europe. Um, and, and so I think that that has really sort of created a tension uh, in, in, the, in the relationship and a tension in the relationship with the United States that uh, still lingers a bit today. I mean, Kenya doesn't exist in, in the most stable place in the world. Um, I guess that makes these elections even more important and, and the issue of political stability in Kenya. I mean, Kenya has never really gone to war I mean, while it has troops in Somalia, it's not really fighting against the state. It's fighting against a group that um, threatens its sovereignty and and security. But um, Kenyans largely are peaceful and uh, and have a really important role in sort of centering uh, the region. Could you talk a little bit about that, especially in terms of these elections? Yeah, Kenya Kenya is an anchor state. Um, the UN has its only headquarters in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, they're in Nairobi. Um, most uh, countries who don't have a diplomatic presence in every country have a presence in Kenya. Um, also, let's think about Kenya's role in terms of uh, mediating peace efforts in the region. Um, they play an important role in EGAD, the East African Regional Body. They've been an important interlocutor on uh, trying to mediate a peace in South Sudan, among other places. Uh, and if they are uh, tied up with uh, you know, an internal uh, stability question, they're not going to be able to play that mediating role. Um, so I think that's something of, of great concern. And how does that play into what we're seeing now in the current campaign and the, in the election that will be held on August 8th? This is the second election we're holding under the new constitution. It's become clear that the, the the state, the county elections um, are just as important and are going to be just as heavily fought. And, you know, and so the politics of Kenya is changing. Secondly, we're seeing something which perhaps I'm talking too early about it, but we're beginning to see the beginning of what I would describe as a civic society in Kenya. Uh, we've had civil society which are NGOs, many of them funded by, you know, U.S. by, by, by you know, U.S. foundations, et cetera, et cetera. But now we have doctors, teachers, lecturers, nurses, lawyers. Kenyan professionals uh, have become the most organized face of activism in Kenya for change. However, the ghost of 2007-2008 hangs over this election like uh, like you know like the angel of death 
in that uh, even now, as I speak, um, many people, uh, um, uh, those who, are, who have the means are making plans to be on holiday from <laughs> Nairobi, many, uh, because they're afraid that, uh, you know, this, this election will be violent. People are stocking up with dry food and that kind of thing. So people are nervous, uh, very nervous about this election. So, Ambassador, you touched upon this briefly, but what are some of the main issues at stake or being discussed during this campaign and, and the election? And what are its implications for the future of Kenya, whether it goes south or whether it's it's relatively peaceful? For, for ordinary Kenyans, if, if, if Odinga wins or Kenyatta wins, their lives are not going to change that much one way or the other. In fact, the way Kenya is governed may not change much one way or the other. What the government is trying to do, what Kenyatta and Ruto are trying to do is to run their campaign based on what they regard as a tremendously successful program of economic growth that they have overseen and directed, and which has helped Kenya generate high GDP growth levels, moved Kenya into the ranks of lower middle income countries, produced a lot of new infrastructure. Whether that argument will be a successful one with the voters pretty much uh, up in the air. I, I tend to doubt it. I think that part of the problem is that inequality has remained a, a big problem in Kenya. Most Kenyans have not really directly personally profited from this, 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 this economic boom. And corruption continues to be a problem where Kenyans are asked what bothers them most, what they would most like to see progress on. It's dealing with official corruption, which everyone in Kenya admits is out of control. And that, and not surprisingly, uh, it is, are those issues that uh, Raila Odinga is, in his campaign, is hammering on. It's on the cost of living. It's on inflation. It's on uh, the stubborn and, and, and perhaps worsening inequality. And it's on the persistence of corruption. Those are the main issues that the two sides are battling, each side arguing to voters that, you know, we, we are best placed to look after you and your interests we're the best place to provide jobs, to generate services. And of course, they have a pretty strong parliament that has a, a big say in things. And should it, Odinga come through, he'd still have to get his policies through, which would be quite difficult. Uh, that's, that's absolutely true. This is one of the aspects of Kenyans, Kenya's fledgling democracy that is encouraging and needs to be nurtured, which is the fact that you do have a parliament and you do have a judiciary, which are both flawed in a number of ways, but which, when operating properly, do check executive power. And uh, that's what they're supposed to do. Now you have um, very competitive local elections. These county governments, executive, legislative, um, we're looking at a record 15,000 plus candidates, 5,000 plus independents almost, many of them who lost in party primaries and decided to go out on their own. Decided to go out as independents. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about that? County experiment's still very much a work in progress. Uh, the central government, the Kenyatta government has done everything it can over time, and I think most central governments would have, to try to slow this process down, uh, try to claw back some of the authorities that had been given to the to the counties. Devolution seems to be, you know, to have sort of a momentum of its own. I think I, 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 I saw a very interesting poll when I was in Kenya last, which Kenyans were asked to, to designate which of the uh, which of the elections most mattered to them, the presidential, the county, the member of parliament, and it's expected most Kenyans said, well, it's the presidential election that matters most. And they were asked then which matters next to you. And they all, the majority said, well, it's the member of their county assembly, which is in effect their state senator or their, you know, their, their uh, state assemblyman. So there is uh, a lot of, I think, voter interest in, in, in the counties. Um, this is also, by the way, a huge 
This is also a huge scramble for resources because upwards of 30% of the federal budget or the, or the, the central budget now is being given to the counties, sent down to the counties for the counties to provide all sorts of services. Uh, a lot of that, unfortunately, is going into the huge public service bill. I mean, the the, count, the governors, I think, are, are uh, of the counties are earning something on the order of 135000 140000 U.S. a year before benefits. This is, these are very competitive elections, and you're going to find some very some odd anomalies and, 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 and possibilities of violence at the, at the local and at the county level, simply because there's so much at stake locally. So, John, looking forward for Kenya, where do you see, where do you see the country going in the next decade? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited by the younger generation of Kenya. They're the first generation of Kenyans who, through their professional labors um, cannot be able to enjoy the quality of life their parents live because uh, inequality here has become so stark. That's very important um, in terms of people organizing. Ambassador Bellamy, could you tell us why Kenya is so important? I mean, there's 50, there's 54 countries in Africa. Why Kenya? Why is it so important? The fact that here is Kenya trying to run this young democratic experiment, imperfect, you know, though, though it is, uh, at a time when uh, democracy is in retreat in a number of other places in the region and, and, and across Africa. In some ways, Kenya stands out as a uh, as a counterexample to larger trends towards you know, liberalism and, and authoritarianism. Our last question we asked all of our guests. It's a little bit fun. So if an international time capsule was shot off into space, what should be included to represent Kenya? Oh. <laughs> well, I'll send the mobile phone. <laughs> Because, um, it must have because, M-Pesa credit. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I would send a mobile phone with M-Pesa credit that like part of a process of changing the whole world. So, Stacey, what are the, the three main takeaways from this episode? First, it's obvious that Kenya is a really important country, not only in Africa, but in the region, Absolutely. politically and economically, what they are really a model and an, and an anchor for some of their African neighbors. That's absolutely true. And I think it says a lot about the, the march of democracy on the continent, um, the way that the Kenyans will make their way through this very complicated political situation. The second one I would say is Kenya's diversity and sort of the complexities that it faces, 50 plus tribes, dozens of uh, ethnic languages and cultures, um, regionally, it's been, you know, parceled out over the years into different provinces. And, um, you know, I think now that uh, Kenyans are operating under a new sort of structure um, of constitution, I think that's, you know, an opportunity for change. But Kenya has a lot of challenges with corruption, um, with crime. Um, they're dealing with issues of security, which I think Lauren highlighted quite well. And the third you touched upon a little bit is that new constitution and the devolution, it really shows Kenya's commitment to a representative, inclusive democracy and could be a way to address some of the corruption and ethnic political challenges they have. Absolutely. I mean, devolution is is, is one element of it. The big question is, can they implement it, the constitution that they put down on paper? I'd like to thank our guests. First, Ambassador Bellamy, um, I think I think his reflection on his time in Kenya 
and his poignant examples of, of, of Kenya's progress democratically um, really hit the mark. And huge thanks to John Gathongo, who really proved to be a champion of anti-corruption initiatives in the face of incredible adversity. And Lauren Plock Blanchard. She did a great job of contextualizing Kenya's situation politically and also looking at the security dimension that really does impact everyday Kenyan lives and the larger security issues on in the region. And also her understanding and, and context of IRI's history in Kenya. On today's episode, you heard the national anthem of Kenya. Imungu Nguvu Yetu, which translates, Oh God of All Creation. Kenya Inchi Yangu by Kakai Kilonzo. Tushungeli Kenya by Thomas Wasonga. Daima Mini in Kenya by Eric Wainaina. Suru Yako by Salty Soul. And the theme music was composed by Alex Hollinghead. So unfortunately, we have to end this episode with some sad news. This is Stacy's last episode as a host of Global. Stacy, what's going on? It's true. It's true. Um, I'm leaving IRI, unfortunately, but I am going to get my master's degree in public policy at the University of Maryland. So I'm really excited about that new opportunity. Well, best of luck in your studies. And we fully expect that all of the students at Maryland uh, will be uh, subscribing to this podcast. Of course, definitely. So as we do in every episode, we leave a hint for the next episode of Global. Uh, Stacy, what do you have? Well, the first Star Wars movie, A New Hope, was filmed in this country. For episode nine, we will be traveling to Tatooine. Well, sort of. I have to admit, I've not watched much Star Wars. But if you have, and you know the answer to our next episode, leave it in the comment section under Global, and we might just mention your name on air.